As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 8 Daisy Mutler, sole topic of conversation. Lupin's new birth. Fireworks at the Cummings. The Holloway Comedians. Sarah quarrels with the charwoman. Lupin's uncalled-for interference. Am introduced to Daisy Mutlar. We decide to give a party in her honour. November the 5th, Sunday. Carrie and I troubled about that near boy Lupin getting engaged to be married without consulting us or anything. After dinner he told us all about it. He said the lady's name was Daisy Mutlar, and she was the nicest, prettiest, and most accomplished girl he ever met. He loved her the moment he saw her, and if he had to wait fifty years, he would wait, and he knew she would wait for him. Lupin further said, with much warmth, that the world was a different place to him now. It was a world worth living in. He lived with an object now, and that was to make Daisy Mutlar Daisy Pooter, and he would guarantee she would not disgrace the family of the Pooters. Carrie here burst out crying, and threw her arms round his neck, and, in doing so, upset the glass of port he held in his hand all over his new light trousers. I said I had no doubt we should like Miss Mutlow when we saw her, but Carrie said she loved her already. I thought this rather premature, but held my tongue. Daisy Mutlow was the sole topic of conversation for the remainder of the day. I asked Lupin who her people were, and he replied, "'Oh, you know, Mutler, Williams, and Watts.' I did not know, but refrained from asking him any further questions at present, for fear of irritating Lupin. November the 6th. Lupin went with me to the office, and had a long conversation with Mr. Perkup, our principal, the result of which was that he accepted a clerkship in the firm of Job, Cleanands & Co., Stock and Share Brokers. Lupin told me privately it was an advertising firm, and he did not think much of it. I replied, Beggars should not be choosers, 
and I will do Lupin the justice to say he looked rather ashamed of himself. In the evening we went round to the Cummings to have a few fireworks. It began to rain, and I thought it rather dull. One of my squibs would not go off, and Gowing said, Hit it on your boot, boy. It'll go off then. I gave it a few knocks on the end of my boot, and it went off with one loud explosion, and burnt my fingers rather badly. I gave the rest of the squibs to the little Cummings boy to let off. Another unfortunate thing happened, which brought a heap of abuse on my head. Cummings fastened a large wheel set-piece on a stake in the ground by way of a grand finale. He made a great fuss about it, said it had cost seven shillings. There was a little difficulty in getting it alight. At last it went off, but after a couple of slow revolutions it stopped. I had my stick with me, so I gave it a tap to send it round, and, unfortunately, it fell off the stake onto the grass. Anybody would have thought I had set the house on fire from the way in which they stormed at me. I will never join in any more fireworks parties. It is a ridiculous waste of time and money. November the 7th. Lupin asked Carrie to call on Mrs. Mutlar, but Carrie said she thought Mrs. Mutlar ought to call on her first. I agreed with Carrie, and this led to an argument. However, the matter was settled by Carrie saying she could not find any visiting cards, and we must get some more printed, and, when they were finished, would be quite time enough to discuss the etiquette of calling. November the 8th. I ordered some of our cards at Black's the stationers. I ordered twenty-five of each, which will last us for a good long time. In the evening, Lupin brought in Frank Mutler, Miss Mutler's brother. He was a rather gawky youth, and Lupin said he was the most popular and best amateur in the club, referring to the Holloway comedians. Lupin whispered to us that if we could only draw out Frank a bit, he would make us roar with laughter. At supper, young Mutler did several amusing things. He took up a knife, and with the flat part of it played a tune on his cheek in a wonderful manner. He also gave an imitation of an old man with no teeth smoking a big cigar. The way he kept dropping the cigar sent Carrie into fits. In the course of conversation, Daisy's name cropped up, and young Mutlar said he would bring his sister round to us one evening, his parents being rather old-fashioned and not going out much. Carrie said we would get up a little special party. As young Mutlar showed no inclination to go, and it was approaching eleven o'clock, as a hint I reminded Lupin that he had to be up early tomorrow morning. Instead of taking the hint, Mutlar began a series of comic imitations. He went on for an hour without cessation. Poor Carrie could scarcely keep her eyes open. At last she made an excuse and said good-night. Mutlar then left, and I heard him and Lupin whispering in the hall something about the Holloway comedians, and, to my disgust, although it was past midnight, Lupin put on his hat and coat and went out with his new companion. November the ninth. My endeavours to discover who tore the sheets out of my diary still fruitless. Lupin has Daisy Mutler on the brain, so we see little of him, except that he invariably turns up at mealtimes. Cummings dropped in. November the tenth. Lupin seems to like his new birth. That's a comfort. Daisy Mutler, the sole topic of conversation during tea. Carrie almost as full of it as Lupin. Lupin informs me to my disgust that he has been persuaded to take part in the forthcoming performance of the Holloway Comedians. He says he is to play Bob Bridges in the farce Gone to My Uncle's.
Frank Mutlar is going to play Old Musty. I told Lupin pretty plainly I was not in the least degree interested in the matter, and totally disapproved of amateur theatricals. Gowing came in the evening. November the 11th. Returned home to find the house in a most disgraceful uproar. Carrie, who appeared very frightened, was standing outside her bedroom, while Sarah was excited and crying. Mrs. Birrell, the charwoman, who had evidently been drinking, was shouting at the top of her voice that she was no thief, that she was a respectable woman, who had to work hard for her living, and she would smack anyone's face who put lies into her mouth. Lupin, whose back was towards me, did not hear me come in. He was standing between the two women, and, I regret to say, in his endeavour to act as peacemaker, he made use of rather strong language in the presence of his mother. And I was just in time to hear him say, and all this fuss about the loss of a few pages from a rotten diary that wouldn't fetch three halfpence a pound. I said, quietly, Pardon me, Lupin, that is a matter of opinion, and as I am master of this house, perhaps you will allow me to take the reins. I ascertained that the cause of the row was that Sarah had accused Mrs. Birrell of tearing the pages out of my diary to wrap up some kitchen fat and leavings, which she had taken out of the house last week. Mrs. Birrell had slapped Sarah's face and said she had taken nothing out of the place. There was never no leavings to take. I ordered Sarah back to her work and requested Mrs. Birrell to go home. When I entered the parlour, Lupin was kicking his legs in the air and roaring with laughter. November the 12th, Sunday. Coming home from church, Carrie and I met Lupin, Daisy Mutler and her brother. Daisy was introduced to us, and we walked home together, Carrie walking on with Miss Mutler. We asked them in for a few minutes, and I had a good look at my future daughter-in-law. My heart quite sank. She is a big young woman, and I should think at least eight years older than Lupin. I did not even think her good-looking. Carrie asked her if she could come in on Wednesday next with her brother to meet a few friends. She replied that she would only be too pleased. November the 13th, Carrie sent out invitations to Gowing, the Cummings, to Mr. and Mrs. James of Sutton, and Mr. Stillbrook. I wrote a note to Mr. Franching of Peckham. Carrie said, we may as well make it a nice affair, and why not ask our principal, Mr. Perkup? I said I feared we were not quite grand enough for him. Carrie said there was no offence in asking him. I said certainly not, and wrote him a letter. Carrie confessed she was a little disappointed with Daisy Mutlar's appearance, but thought she seemed a nice girl. November the 14th. Everybody so far has accepted for our quite grand little party for tomorrow. Mr. Perkup, in a nice letter which I shall keep, wrote that he was dining in Kensington, but if he could get away, he would come up to Holloway for an hour. Carrie was busy all day making little cakes and open jam puffs and jellies. She said she felt quite nervous about her responsibilities tomorrow evening. We decided to have some light things on the table, such as sandwiches, cold chicken and ham, and some sweets, and on the sideboard a nice piece of cold beef and a paysandu tongue for the more hungry ones to peg into if they liked. Gowing called to know if he was to put on swallowtails tomorrow. Carrie said he had better dress, especially as Mr. Franching was coming, and there's a possibility of Mr. Perkup also putting in an appearance. Gowing said, oh, I only wanted to know, for I have not worn my dress coat for some time, and I must send it to have the creases pressed out. 
after going left lupin came in and in his anxiety to please daisy mutler carped at and criticised the arrangements and in fact disapproved of everything including our having asked our old friend cummings who he said would look in evening dress like a greengrocer engaged to wait and who must not be surprised if daisy took him for one i fairly lost my temper and said lupin allow me to tell you miss daisy mutlar is not the queen of england i gave you credit for more wisdom than to allow yourself to be inveigled into an engagement with a woman considerably older than yourself i advise you to think of earning your living before entangling yourself with a wife whom you will have to support and in all probability her brother also who appeared to be nothing but a loafer instead of receiving this advice in a sensible manner lupin jumped up and said if you insult the lady i am engaged to you insult me i will leave the house and never darken your doors again he went out of the house slamming the hall door but it was all right he came back to supper and we played bezique till nearly twelve o'clock end of chapter The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith, read for LibriVox.org, by Martin Clifton. Chapter 9 Our First Important Party Old Friends and New Friends Gowing is a little annoying, but his friend, Mr. Stillbrook, turns out to be quite amusing. Inopportune arrival of Mr. Perkup, but he is most kind and complimentary. Party a great success. November the 15th, a red-letter day, our first important party since we have been in this house. I got home early from the city, Lupin insisted on having a hired waiter, and stood a half a dozen of champagne. I think this is an unnecessary expense, but Lupin said he had had a piece of luck, having made three pounds out of a private deal in the city. I hope he won't gamble in his new situation. The supper-room looked so nice, and Carrie truly said, We need not be ashamed of its being seen by Mr. Perkup, should he honour us by coming. I dressed early in case people should arrive punctually at eight o'clock, and was much vexed to find my new dress-trousers much too short. Lupin, who is getting beyond his position, found a fault with my wearing ordinary boots instead of dress-boots. I replied satirically, My dear son, I have lived to be above that sort of thing. Lupin burst out laughing, and said, A man generally was above his boots. This may be funny, or it may not, but I was gratified to find he had not discovered the coral had come off one of my studs. Carrie looked a picture, wearing the dress she wore at the mansion house. The arrangement of the drawing-room was excellent. Carrie had hung muslin curtains over the folding doors, and also over one of the entrances, for we had removed the door from its hinges. Mr. Peters, the waiter, arrived in good time, and I gave him strict orders not to open another bottle of champagne until the previous one was empty. Carrie arranged for some sherry and port wine to be placed on the drawing-room sideboard with some glasses. By the by, our new enlarged and tinted photographs look very nice on the walls, especially as Carrie has arranged some Liberty silk bows on the four corners of them. The first arrival was Gowing, who, with his usual taste, greeted me with, Hello, Pooter, 
Why, your trousers are too short. I simply said, Very likely, and you will find my temper short also. He said, That won't make your trousers longer, Juggins. You should get your missus to put a flounce on them. I wonder I waste my time entering his insulting observations in my diary. The next arrivals were Mr. and Mrs. Cummings. The former said, As you didn't say anything about dress, I have come half-dress. He had on a black frock coat and a white tie. The James, Mr. Merton and Mr. Stillbrook arrived, but Lupin was restless and unbearable till his Daisy Mutlar and Frank arrived. Carrie and I were rather startled at Daisy's appearance. She had a bright crimson dress on, cut very low in the neck. I do not think such a style modest. She ought to have taken a lesson from Carrie, and covered her shoulders with a little lace. Mr. Knackles, Mr. Spryce Hogg, and his four daughters came. So did Franching, and one or two of Lupin's new friends, members of the Holloway Comedians. Some of these seemed rather theatrical in their manner, especially one who was posing all the evening, and leant on our little round table and cracked it. Lupin called him R. Henry, and said he was our lead at the H.C.'s, and was quite as good in that department as Frank Mutlar was as the low comedy merchant. All this is Greek to me. We had some music, and Lupin, who never left Daisy's side for a moment, raved over her singing of a song called Some Day. It seemed a pretty song, but she made such grimaces, and sang to my mind so out of tune I would not have asked her to sing again. But Lupin made her sing four songs right off, one after the other. At ten o'clock we went down to supper, and from the way Gowing and Cummings ate, you would have thought they had not had a meal for a month. I told Carrie to keep coming back in case Mr. Perkup should come by mere chance. Gowing annoyed me very much by filling a large tumbler of champagne and drinking it straight off. He repeated this action, and made me fear our half-dozen of champagne would not last out. I tried to keep a bottle back, but Lupin got hold of it, and took it to the side-table with Daisy and Frank Mutlar. We went upstairs, and the young fellows began skylarking. Carrie put a stop to that at once. Stillbrook amused us with a song. What have you done with your cousin John? I did not notice that Lupin and Frank had disappeared. I asked Mr. Watson, one of the Holloways, where they were, and he said, It's a case of, oh, what a surprise! We were directed to form a circle, which we did, Watson then said, I have much pleasure in introducing the celebrated Blondin Donkey. Frank and Lupin then bounded into the room. Lupin had whitened his face like a clown, and Frank had tied round his waist a large hearthrug. He was supposed to be the donkey, and he looked it. They indulged in a very noisy pantomime, and we were all shrieking with laughter. I turned round suddenly, and then I saw Mr. Perkup standing halfway in the door, he having arrived without our knowing it. I beckoned to Carrie, and we went up to him at once. He would not come right into the room. I apologised for the foolery, but Mr. Perkup said, Oh, it seems amusing. I could see he was not a bit amused. Carrie and I took him downstairs, but the table was a wreck. There was not a glass of champagne left, not even a sandwich. Mr. Perkup said he required nothing, but would like a glass of seltzer or soda-water. The last siphon was empty. Carrie said, we have plenty of port wine left. 
Mr. Perkup said with a smile, No, thank you. I really require nothing, but I am most pleased to see you and your husband in your own home. Good night, Mrs. Pooter. You will excuse my very short stay, I know. I went with him to his carriage, and he said, Don't trouble to come to the office till twelve tomorrow. I felt despondent as I walked back to the house, and I told Carrie I thought the party was a failure. Carrie said it was a great success, and I was only tired, and insisted on my having some port myself. I drank two glasses and felt much better, and we went into the drawing-room where they had commenced dancing. Carrie and I had a little dance, which I said reminded me of old days. She said I was a spoony old thing. End of chapter The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 10 Reflections I make another good joke. Am annoyed at the constant serving up of the blancmange. Lupin expresses his opinion of weddings. Lupin falls out with Daisy Mutler. November the 16th. Woke up about twenty times during the night with terrible thirst. Finished off all the water in the bottle, as well as half that in the jug. Kept dreaming, also, that last night's party was a failure, and that a lot of low people came without invitation, and kept chaffing and throwing things at Mr. Perkup, till at last I was obliged to hide him in the box-room, which we had just discovered, with a bath-towel over him. It seems absurd now, but it was painfully real in the dream. I had the same dream about a dozen times. Carrie annoyed me by saying, You know champagne never agrees with you. I told her I had only a couple of glasses of it, having kept myself entirely to port. I added that good champagne hurt nobody, and Lupin told me he had only got it from a traveller as a favour, as that particular brand had been entirely bought up by a West End club. I think I ate too heartily of the side dishes, as the waiter called them. I said to Carrie, I wish I had put those side dishes aside. I repeated this, but Carrie was busy packing up the teaspoons we had borrowed of Mrs. Cummings for the party. It was just half-past eleven, and I was starting for the office when Lupin appeared with a yellow complexion and said, Hello, Gov. What priced head have you got this morning? I told him he might just as well speak to me in Dutch. He added, When I woke this morning my head was as big as Baldwin's balloon. On the spur of the moment, I said the cleverest thing I think I have ever said, viz. Perhaps that accounts for the parachuting pains. We all three roared. November the 17th. Still feel tired and headachy. In the evening, Gowing called, and was full of praise about our party last Wednesday. He said everything was done beautifully, and he enjoyed himself enormously. Gowing can be a very nice fellow when he likes, but you never know how long it will last. For instance, he stopped to supper, and, seeing some blancmange on the table, shouted out, while the servant was in the room, Hello, the remains of Wednesday? November the 18th Woke up quite fresh after a good night's rest, and feel quite myself again. I am satisfied a life of going out and society is not a life for me. We therefore declined the invitation which we received this morning to Miss Bird's wedding. We only met her twice at Mrs. James, and it means a present. 
Lupin said, I'm with you for once. To my mind, a wedding's a very poor play. There are only two parts in it, the bride and the bridegroom. The best man is only a walking gentleman. With the exception of a crying father and a snivelling mother, the rest are supers, who have to dress well and have to pay for their insignificant parts in the shape of costly presents. I did not care for the theatrical slang, but thought it clever, though disrespectful. I told Sarah not to bring up the blancmange again for breakfast. It seems to have been placed on our table at every meal since Wednesday. Cummings came round in the evening and congratulated us on the success of our party. He said it was the best party he had been to for many a year. But he wished we had let him know it was full dress, as he would have turned up in his swallowtails. We sat down to a quiet game of dominoes and were interrupted by the noisy entrance of Lupin and Frank Mutler. Cummings and I asked them to join us. Lupin said he did not care for dominoes and suggested a game of spoof. On my asking if it required counters, Frank and Lupin in measured time says, One, two, three, go. Have you an estate in Greenland? It was simply Greek to me, but it appears it is one of the customs of the Holloway comedians to do this when a member displays ignorance. In spite of my instructions, that blancmange was brought up again for supper. To make matters worse, there had been an attempt to disguise it by placing it in a glass dish with jam round it. Carrie asked Lupin if he would have some, and he replied, No second-hand goods for me, thank you. I told Carrie, when we were alone, if that blancmange were placed on the table again, I should walk out of the house. November the 19th, Sunday. A delightfully quiet day. In the afternoon, Lupin was off to spend the rest of the day with the mutlers. He departed in the best of spirits, and Carrie said, Well, one advantage of Lupin's engagement with Daisy is that the boy seems happy all day long. That quite reconciles me to what I must confess seems an imprudent engagement. Carrie and I talked the matter over during the evening, and agreed that it did not always follow that an early engagement meant an unhappy marriage. Dear Carrie reminded me that we had married early, and, with the exception of a few trivial misunderstandings, we had never had a really serious word. I could not help thinking, as I told her, that half the pleasures of life were derived from the little struggles and small privations that one had to endure at the beginning of one's married life. Such struggles were generally occasioned by want of means, and often helped to make loving couples stand together all the firmer. Carrie said I had expressed myself wonderfully well, and that I was quite a philosopher. We are all vain at times, and I must confess I felt flattered by Carrie's little compliment. I don't pretend to be able to express myself in fine language, but I feel I have the power of expressing my thoughts with simplicity and lucidness. About nine o'clock, to our surprise, Lupin entered with a wild, reckless look, and in a hollow voice, which I must say seemed rather theatrical, said, "'Have you any brandy?' I said, "'No, but here is some whisky." Lupin drank off nearly a wine-glassful without water, to my horror. We all three sat reading in silence till ten, when Carrie and I rose to go to bed. Carrie said to Lupin, "'I hope Daisy is well?' Lupin, with a forced, careless air that he must have picked up from the Holloway comedians, replied, "'Oh, Daisy, you mean Miss Mutler. I don't know whether she's well or not, but please never to mention her name again in my presence.'" End of chapter
The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 11. We have a dose of Irving imitations. Make the acquaintance of a Mr. Padge. Don't care for him. Mr. Berwin Fosselton becomes a nuisance. November the 20th. Have seen nothing of Lupin the whole day. Bought a cheap address book. I spent the evening copying in the names and addresses of my friends and acquaintances. Left out the mutlers, of course. November the 21st. Lupin turned up for a few minutes in the evening. He asked for a drop of brandy with a sort of careless look, which to my mind was theatrical and quite ineffective. I said, my boy, I have none, and I don't think I should give it you if I had. Lupin said, I'll go where I can get some, and walked out of the house. Carrie took the boy's part, and the rest of the evening was spent in a disagreeable discussion in which the words Daisy and Mutlar must have occurred a thousand times. November the 22nd. Gowing and Cummings dropped in during the evening. Lupin also came in, bringing his friend Mr. Berwin Fosselton, one of the Holloway comedians, who was at our party the other night, and who cracked our little round table. Happy to say, Daisy Mutler was never referred to. The conversation was almost entirely monopolised by the young fellow Fosselton, who not only looked rather like Mr. Irving, but seemed to imagine that he was the celebrated actor. I must say he gave some capital imitations of him. As he showed no signs of moving at supper-time, I said, "'If you like to stay, Mr. Fosselton, for our usual crust, pray do.' He replied, "'Oh, thanks, but please call me Berwin Fosselton. It's a double name. There are lots of Fosseltons, but please call me Berwin Fosselton.' He began doing the Irving business all through supper, he sank so low down in his chair that his chin was almost on a level with the table, and twice he kicked Carrie under the table, upset his wine, and flashed a knife uncomfortably near Gowing's face. After supper he kept stretching out his legs on the fender, indulging in scraps of quotations from plays which were Greek to me, and more than once knocked over the fire-irons, making a hideous row, poor Carrie already having a bad headache. When he went, he said, to our surprise, I will come tomorrow and bring my Irving make-up. Gowing and Cummings said they would like to see it, and would come too. I could not help thinking they might as well give a party at my house while they were about it. However, as Carrie sensibly said, do anything, dear, to make Lupin forget the Daisy Mutler business. November the 23rd. In the evening, Cummings came early. Gowing came a little later, and brought, without asking permission, a fat and, I think, very vulgar-looking man named Padge, who appeared to be all moustache. Gowing never attempted any apology to either of us, but said Padge wanted to see the Irving business. To which Padge said, That's right, and that is about all he did say during the entire evening. Lupin came in and seemed in much better spirits. He had prepared a bit of a surprise. Mr. Berwin Fosselton had come in with him, but had gone upstairs to get ready. In half an hour Lupin retired from the parlour, and, returning in a few minutes, announced, Mr. Henry Irving. I must say we were all astounded. 
I never saw such a resemblance. It was astonishing. The only person who did not appear interested was the man Padge, who had got the best armchair and was puffing away at a foul pipe into the fireplace. After some little time I said, Why do actors always wear their hair so long? Carrie, in a moment, said, Mr. Hare doesn't wear long hair. How we laughed, except Mr. Fosselton, who said, in a rather patronising kind of way, The joke, Mrs. Pooter, is extremely appropriate, if not altogether new. Thinking this rather a snub, I said, Mr. Fosselton, I fancy he interrupted me by saying, Mr. Berwin Fosselton, if you please, which made me quite forget what I was going to say to him. During the supper, Mr. Berwin Fosselton again monopolised the conversation with his Irving talk, and both Carrie and I came to the conclusion one can have even too much imitation of Irving. After supper, Mr. Berwin Fosselton got a little too boisterous over his Irving imitation, and suddenly, seizing Gowing by the collar of his coat, dug his thumbnail, accidentally of course, into Gowing's neck and took a piece of flesh out. Gowing was rightly annoyed. But that man Padge, who, having declined our modest supper in order that he should not lose his comfortable chair, burst into an uncontrollable fit of laughter at the little misadventure. I was so annoyed at the conduct of Padge, I said, I suppose you would have laughed if he had poked Mr. Gowing's eye out, to which Padge replied, That's right, and laughed more than ever. I think perhaps the greatest surprise was when we broke up, for Mr. Berwin Fosselton said, Good night, Mr. Pooter. I'm glad you like the imitation. I'll bring the other make-up tomorrow night. November the 24th. I went to town without a pocket-handkerchief. This is the second time I've done this during the last week. I must be losing my memory. Had it not been for this Daisy Mutler business, I would have written to Mr. Berwin Fosselton and told him I should be out this evening but I fancy he's the sort of young man who would come all the same. Dear old Cummings came in the evening, but Gowing sent round a little note saying he hoped I would excuse his not turning up, which rather amused me. He added that his neck was still painful. Of course, Berwin Fosselton came, but Lupin never turned up, and imagine my utter disgust when the man Padge actually came again, and not even accompanied by Gowing. I was exasperated, and said, Mr. Padge, this is a surprise. Dear Carrie, fearing unpleasantness, said, Oh, I suppose Mr. Padge has only come to see the other Irving make-up. Mr. Padge said, That's right, and took the best chair again, for which he never moved the whole evening. My only consolation is, he takes no supper, so he's not an expensive guest, but I shall speak to Gowing about the matter. The Irving imitations and conversations occupied the whole evening, till I was sick of it. Once we had a rather heated discussion, which was commenced by Cummings, saying that it appeared to him that Mr. Berwin Fosselton was not only like Mr. Irving, but was, in his judgment, every way as good or even better. I ventured to remark that, after all, it was but an imitation of an original. Cummings said surely some imitations were better than the originals. I made what I considered a very clever remark. Without an original, there can be no imitation. Mr. Berwin Fosselton said, quite impertinently, Don't discuss me in my presence, if you please, and, Mr. Pooter, I should advise you to talk about what you understand. To which that cad Padge replied, That's right. 
dear Carrie saved the whole thing by suddenly saying, "'I'll be Ellen Terry.' Dear Carrie's imitation wasn't a bit liked, but she was so spontaneous and so funny that the disagreeable discussion passed off. When they left, I very pointedly said to Mr. Burwin Fosselton and Mr. Padge that we should be engaged to-morrow evening. November the 25th had a long letter from Mr. Fosselton respecting last night's Irving discussion. I was very angry, and I wrote and said I knew little or nothing about stage matters, was not in the least interested in them, and positively declined to be drawn into a discussion on the subject, even at the risk of its leading to a breach of friendship. I never wrote a more determined letter. On returning home at the usual hour on Saturday afternoon, I met, near the archway, Daisy Mutlar. My heart gave a leap. I bowed, rather stiffly, but she affected not to have seen me. Very much annoyed in the evening by the laundress sending home an odd sock. Sarah said she sent two pairs, and the laundress declared only a pair and a half were sent. I spoke to Carrie about it, but she rather testily replied, I am tired of speaking to her. You had better go and speak to her yourself. She's outside. I did so, but the laundress declared that only an odd sock was sent. Gowing passed into the passage at this time, and was rude enough to listen to the conversation, and, interrupting, said, "'Don't waste the odd sock, old man. Do an act of charity, and give it to some poor man with only one leg.' The laundress giggled like an idiot. I was disgusted, and walked upstairs for the purpose of pinning down my collar as the button had come off the back of my shirt. When I returned to the parlour, Gowing was retailing his idiotic joke about the odd sock, and Carrie was roaring with laughter. I suppose I am losing my sense of humour. I spoke my mind pretty freely about Padge. Gowing said he had met him only once before that evening. He had been introduced by a friend, and as he, Padge, had stood a good dinner, Gowing wished to show him some little return. Upon my word, Gowing's coolness surpasses all belief. Lupin came in before I could reply, and Gowing, unfortunately, inquired after Daisy Mutler. Lupin shouted, "'Mind your own business, sir!' and bounced out of the room, slamming the door. The remainder of the night was Daisy Mutler, Daisy Mutler, Daisy Mutler. Oh, dear! November the 26th, Sunday The curate preached a very good sermon today, very good indeed. His appearance is never so impressive as our dear old vicar's, but I am bound to say his sermons are much more impressive. A rather annoying incident occurred, of which I must make mention. Mrs. Fernloss, who is quite a grand lady, living in one of those large houses in the Camden Road, stopped to speak to me after church, when we were all coming out. I must say I felt flattered, for she is thought a good deal of. I suppose she knew me through seeing me so often take round the plate, especially as she always occupies the corner seat of the pew. She is a very influential lady, and may have had something of the utmost importance to say. But, unfortunately, as she commenced to speak, a strong gust of wind came and blew my hat off into the middle of the road. I had to run after it, and had the greatest difficulty in recovering it. When I had succeeded in doing so, I found Mrs. Fernloss had walked on with some swell friends, and I felt I could not well approach her now, especially as my hat was smothered with mud. I cannot say how disappointed I felt. In the evening, Sunday evening of all others, 
I found an impertinent note from Mr. Berwin Fosselton, which ran as follows. Dear Mr. Pooter, although your junior by perhaps some twenty or thirty years, which is sufficient reason that you ought to have a longer record of the things and ways in this miniature of a planet, I feel it is just within the bounds of possibility that the wheels of your life don't travel so quickly round as those of the humble writer of these lines. The dandy horse of past days has been known to overtake the slow coach. Do I make myself understood? Very well, then. Permit me, Mr. Pooter, to advise you to accept the verb sap. Acknowledge your defeat and take your whipping gracefully. For remember, you threw down the glove, and I cannot claim to be either mentally or physically a coward. Revenons à nous moutons. Our lives run in different grooves. I live for my art, the stage. Your life is devoted to commercial pursuits, a life among ledgers. My books are of different metal. Your life in the city is honourable, I admit, but how different! Cannot even you see the ocean between us, a channel that prevents the meeting of our brains in harmonious accord? Ah, but chacun a son goût. I have registered a vow to mount the steps of fame. I may crawl, I may slip, I may even falter. We are all weak, but reach the top rung of the ladder I will. When there my voice shall be heard, for I will shout to the multitudes below, Vici. For the present I am only an amateur, and my work is unknown, forsooth, save to a party of friends, with here and there an enemy. But, Mr. Pooter, let me ask you, what is the difference between the amateur and the professional? None. Stay, yes, there is a difference. One is paid for doing what the other does as skilfully for nothing. But I will be paid too, for I, contrary to the wishes of my family and friends, have at last elected to adopt the stage as my profession. And when the farce craze is over, and mark you that will be soon, I will make my power known, for I feel, pardon my apparent conceit, that there is no living man who can play the humpbacked Richard as I feel and know I can. And you will be the first to come round and bend your head in submission. There are many matters you may understand, but knowledge of the fine art of acting is to you an unknown quantity. Pray let this discussion cease with this letter. Vale. Yours truly, Berwin Fosselton. I was disgusted. When Lupin came in, I handed him this impertinent letter and said, My boy, in that letter you can see the true character of your friend. Lupin, to my surprise, said, Oh, yes, he showed me the letter before he sent it. I think he's right and you ought to apologise. End of chapter The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 12 A serious discussion concerning the use and value of my diary Lupin's opinion of Xmas Lupin's unfortunate engagement is on again December the 17th as I open my scribbling diary, I find the words Oxford Michaelmas term ends. Why this should induce me to indulge in retrospective, I don't know, but it does. 
the last few weeks of my diary are of minimum interest. The breaking off of the engagement between Lupin and Daisy Mutlar has made him a different being, and Carrie a rather depressing companion. She was a little dull last Saturday, and I thought to cheer her up by reading some extracts from my diary. But she walked out of the room in the middle of the reading, without a word. On her return, I said, Did my diary bore you, darling? She replied, to my surprise, I really wasn't listening, dear. I was obliged to leave to give instructions to the laundress. In consequence of some stuff she puts in the water, two more of Lupin's coloured shirts have run, and he says he won't wear them. I said, everything is Lupin. It's all Lupin, Lupin, Lupin. There was not a single button on my shirt yesterday, but I made no complaint. Carrie simply replied, you should do as all other men do, and wear studs. In fact, I never saw anyone but you wear buttons on the shirt fronts. I said, I certainly wore none yesterday, for there were none on. Another thought that strikes me is that Gowing seldom calls in the evening, and Cummings never does. I fear they don't get on well with Lupin. December the 18th. Yesterday I was in retrospective vein. Today it is prospective. I see nothing but clouds, clouds, clouds. Lupin is perfectly intolerable over the Daisy Mutler business. He won't say what is the cause of the breach. He is evidently condemning her conduct, and yet, if we venture to agree with him, says he won't hear a word against her. So what is one to do? Another thing which is disappointing to me is that Carrie and Lupin take no interest whatever in my diary. I broached the subject at the breakfast table today. I said, I was in hopes that, if anything ever happened to me, the diary would be an endless source of pleasure to you both, to say nothing of the chance of the remuneration which may accrue from its being published. Both Carrie and Lupin burst out laughing. Carrie was sorry for this, I could see, for she said, I did not mean to be rude, dear Charlie, but truly I do not think your diary would sufficiently interest the public to be taken up by a publisher. I replied, I am sure it would prove quite as interesting as some of the ridiculous reminiscences that have been published lately. Besides, it's the diary that makes the man. Where would Evelyn and Pepys have been if it had not been for their diaries? Carrie said I was quite a philosopher, but Lupin, in a jeering tone, said, if it had been written on a larger paper, Gov, we might get a fair price from a butterman for it. As I am in the prospective vein, I vow the end of this year will see the end of my diary. December the 19th. The annual invitation came to spend Christmas with Carrie's mother, the usual family festive gathering to which we always look forward. Lupin declined to go. I was astounded and expressed my surprise and disgust. Lupin then obliged us with the following radical speech. I hate a family gathering at Christmas. What does it mean? Why, someone says, Ah, we miss poor Uncle James, who was here last year. And we all begin to snivel. Someone else says, It's two years since poor Aunt Liz used to sit in that corner. Then we all begin to snivel again. Then another gloomy relation says, Ah, I wonder whose turn it will be next. Then we all snivel again and proceed to eat and drink too much, and they don't discover until I get up that we have been seated thirteen at dinner. December the 20th, went to Smirksons the Drapers in the Strand, who this year have turned out everything in the shop and devoted the whole place to the sale of Christmas cards.
shop crowded with people who seemed to take up the cards rather roughly, and, after a hurried glance at them, throw them down again. I remarked to one of the young persons serving that carelessness appeared to be a disease with some purchasers. The observation was scarcely out of my mouth when my thick coat-sleeve caught against a large pile of expensive cards in boxes, one on top of the other, and threw them down. The manager came forward, looking very much annoyed, and, picking up several cards from the ground, said to one of the assistants, with a palpable side-glance at me, "'Put these amongst the sixpenny goods. They can't be sold for a shilling now.' The result was I felt it my duty to buy some of these damaged cards. I had to buy more and pay more than intended. Unfortunately, I did not examine them all, and when I got home I discovered a vulgar card with a picture of a fat nurse with two babies, one black and the other white, and the words, "'We wish Pa a Merry Christmas.' I tore up the card and threw it away. Carrie said the great disadvantage of going out in society— and increasing the number of our friends, was that we should have to send out nearly two dozen cards this year. December the 21st. To save the postman a miserable Christmas, we followed the example of all unselfish people, and sent out our cards early. Most of the cards had finger marks, which I did not notice at night. I shall buy all future cards in the daytime. Lupin, who ever since he has had the appointment with a stock and share broker does not seem over-scrupulous in his dealings, told me never to rub out the pencil price on the backs of the cards. I asked him why. Lupin said, suppose your card is marked ninepence. Well, all you have to do is to pencil a three and a long downstroke after it in front of the ninepence, and people will think you've given five times the price for it. In the evening Lupin was very low-spirited, and I reminded him that behind the cloud the sun was shining. He said, Ugh! It never shines on me. I said, Stop, Lupin, my boy. You are worried about Daisy Mutlar. Don't think of her any more. You ought to congratulate yourself on having got off a very bad bargain. Her notions are far too grand for our simple tastes. He jumped up and said, I won't allow one word to be uttered against her. She's worth the whole bunch of your friends put together, that inflated, sloping head of a perk-up included. I left the room with silent dignity, but caught my foot in the mat. December the 23rd. I exchanged no words with Lupin in the morning. But as he seemed to be in exuberant spirits in the evening, I ventured to ask him where he intended to spend his Christmas. He replied, Oh, most likely at the Mutler's. In wonderment, I said, what, after your engagement has been broken off? Lupin said, who said it's off? I said, you have given us both to understand. He interrupted me by saying, well, never mind what I said, it's on again, there. End of chapter The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 13 I receive an insulting Christmas card. We spend a pleasant Christmas at Carrie's mother's. A Mr. Moss is rather too free. A boisterous evening during which I am struck in the dark. I receive an extraordinary letter from Mr. Mutlar, Sr., 
respecting Lupin. We miss drinking out the old year. December the 24th. I am a poor man, but I would gladly give ten shillings to find out who sent me the insulting Christmas card I received this morning. I never insult people. Why should they insult me? The worst part of the transaction is that I find myself suspecting all my friends. The handwriting on the envelope is evidently disguised, being written sloping the wrong way. I cannot think either Gowing or Cummings would do such a mean thing. Lupin denied all knowledge of it, and I believe him, although I disapprove of his laughing and sympathising with the offender. Mr. Franching would be above such an act, and I don't think any of the mutlars would descend to such a course. I wonder if Pitt, that impudent clerk at the office, did it, or Mrs. Birrell, the charwoman, or Berwin Fosselton. The writing is too good for the former. Christmas Day. We caught the 10.20 train at Paddington, and spent a pleasant day at Carrie's mother's. The country was quite nice and pleasant, although the roads were sloppy. We dined in the middle of the day, just ten of us, and talked over old times. If everybody had a nice, uninterfering mother-in-law, such as I have, what a deal of happiness there would be in the world! Being all in good spirits, I proposed her health, and I made, I think, a very good speech. I concluded, rather neatly, by saying, On an occasion like this, whether relatives, friends, or acquaintances, we are all inspired with good feelings towards each other. We are of one mind, and think only of love and friendship. Those who have quarrelled with absent friends should kiss and make it up. Those who happily have not fallen out can kiss all the same. I saw the tears in the eyes of both Carrie and her mother, and must say I felt very flattered by the compliment. That dear old Reverend John Pansy Smith, who married us, made a most cheerful and amusing speech, and said he should act on my suggestion respecting the kissing. He then walked round the table and kissed all the ladies, including Carrie. Of course, one did not object to this, but I was more than staggered when a young fellow named Moss, who was a stranger to me, and who had scarcely spoken a word through dinner, jumped up suddenly with a sprig of mistletoe and exclaimed, Hello, I don't see why I shouldn't be on in this scene. Before one could realise what he was about to do, he kissed Carrie and the rest of the ladies. Fortunately, the matter was treated as a joke, and we all laughed. But it was a dangerous experiment, and I feel very uneasy for a moment as to the result. I subsequently referred to the matter to Carrie, but she said, Oh, he's not much more than a boy. I said that he had a very large moustache for a boy. Carrie replied, I didn't say he was not a nice boy. December the 26th. I did not sleep very well last night. I never do in a strange bed. I feel a little indigestion, which one must expect at this time of year. Carrie and I returned to town in the evening. Lupin came in late. He said he enjoyed his Christmas, and added, I feel as fit as a Lowther Arcade fiddle, and only require a little more oof to feel as fit as a five-hundred-pound Stradivarius. I have long since given up trying to understand Lupin's slang, or asking him to explain it. December the 27th I told Lupin I was expecting Gowing and Cummings to drop in tomorrow evening for a quiet game. I was in hope the boy would volunteer to stay in and help me to amuse them, instead of which he said, 
"'Oh, you'd better put them off, as I've asked Daisy and Frank Mutlar to come.' I said I could not think of doing such a thing. Lupin said, "'Then I will send a wire and put off Daisy.' I suggested that a postcard or letter would reach her quite soon enough, and would not be so extravagant. Carrie, who had listened to the above conversation with apparent annoyance, directed a well-aimed shaft at Lupin. She said, "'Lupin, why do you object to Daisy meeting your father's friends? Is it because they are not good enough for her, or, which is equally possible, she is not good enough for them?' Lupin was dumbfounded, and could make no reply." When he left the room, I gave Carrie a kiss of approval. December the 28th Lupin, on coming down to breakfast, said to his mother, I have not put off Daisy and Frank, and should like them to join Gowing and Cummings this evening. I felt very pleased with the boy for this. Carrie said, in reply, I am glad you let me know in time, as I can turn over the cold leg of mutton, dress it with a little parsley, and no one will know it has been cut. She further said she would make a few custards and stew some pippins, so that they would be cold by the evening. Finding Lupin in good spirits, I asked him quietly if he really had any personal objection to either Gowing or Cummings. He replied, Not in the least. I think Cummings looks rather an ass, but that is partly due to his patronising the three-and-six-one-price hat company, and wearing a reach-me-down frock-coat. As for that perpetual brown velveteen jacket of Gowing's, why he resembles an itinerant photographer. I said it was not the coat that made the gentleman, whereupon Lupin, with a laugh, replied, No, and it wasn't much of a gentleman who made their coats. We were rather jolly at supper, and Daisy made herself very agreeable, especially in the earlier part of the evening when she sang. At supper, however, she said, Can you make Tito Tums with bread? And she commenced rolling up pieces of bread, and twisting them round on the table. I felt this to be bad manners, but of course said nothing. Presently, Daisy and Lupin, to my disgust, began throwing bread-pills at each other. Frank followed suit, and so did Cummings and Gowing, to my astonishment. They then commenced throwing hard pieces of crust, one piece catching me on the forehead and making me blink. I said, Steady, please, steady. Frank jumped up and said, tum-tum, then the band played. I did not know what this meant, but they all roared, and continued the bread-battle. Gowing suddenly seized all the parsley off the cold mutton, and threw it full in my face. I looked daggers at Gowing, who replied, I say, it's no good trying to look indignant, with your hair full of parsley. I rose from the table, and insisted that a stop should be put to this foolery at once. Frank Mutler shouted, "'Time, gentlemen, please, time,' and burned out the gas, leaving us in absolute darkness. I was feeling my way out of the room when I suddenly received a hard, intentional punch at the back of my head. I said loudly, "'Who did that?' There was no answer, so I repeated the question with the same result. I struck a match and lighted the gas. They were all talking and laughing, so I kept my own counsel. But after they had gone, I said to Carrie, the person who sent me that insulting postcard at Christmas was here to-night. December the 29th. I had a most vivid dream last night. I woke up and, on falling asleep, dreamed the same dream over again, precisely. I dreamt I heard Frank Mutlar telling his sister 
that he had not only sent me the insulting Christmas card, but admitted that he was the one who punched my head last night in the dark. As fate would have it, Lupin at breakfast was reading extracts from a letter he had just received from Frank. I asked him to pass the envelope, that I might compare the writing. He did so, and I examined it by the side of the envelope containing the Christmas card. I detected a similarity in the writing, in spite of the attempted disguise. I passed them on to Carrie, who began to laugh. I asked her what she was laughing at, and she said the card was never directed to me at all. It was L. Pooter, not C. Pooter. Lupin asked to look at the direction and the card, and exclaimed with a laugh, Oh, yes, Gov, it's meant for me. I said, Are you in the habit of receiving insulting Christmas cards? He replied, Oh, yes, and of sending them, too. In the evening, Gowing called, and said he enjoyed himself very much last night. I took the opportunity to confide in him, as an old friend, about the vicious punch last night. He burst out laughing, and said, Oh, it was your head, was it? I know I accidentally hit something, but I thought it was a brick wall. I told him I felt hurt in both senses of the expression. December the 30th, Sunday. Lupin spent the whole day with the mutlers. He seemed rather cheerful in the evening, so I said, I am glad to see you so happy, Lupin. He answered, Well, Daisy is a splendid girl, but I was obliged to take her old fool of a father down a peg. What with his meanness over his cigars, his stinginess over his drinks, his farthing economy in turning down the gas if you only quit the room for a second, writing to one on half sheets of notepaper, sticking the remnant of the last cake of soap onto the new cake, putting two bricks on each side of the fireplace, and his general outside halfpenny bustness, I was compelled to let him have a bit of my mind. I said, Lupin, you're not much more than a boy. I hope you won't repent it. December the 31st, the last day of the old year, I received an extraordinary letter from Mr. Mutler, Sr. He writes, Dear Sir, for a long time past I have had considerable difficulty deciding the important question, Who is the master of my own house? Myself, or your son, Lupin. Believe me, I have no prejudice one way or the other but I have been most reluctantly compelled to give judgment to the effect that I am the master of it. Under the circumstances, it has become my duty to forbid your son to enter my house again. I am sorry, because it deprives me of the society of one of the most modest, unassuming, and gentlemanly persons I have ever had the honour of being acquainted with. I did not desire the last day to wind up disagreeably, so I said nothing to either carry or Lupin about the letter. A most terrible fog came on, and Lupin would go out in it, but promised to be back to drink out the old year, a custom we have always observed. At a quarter to twelve, Lupin had not returned, and the fog was fearful. As time was drawing close, I got out the spirits. Carrie and I, deciding on whisky, I opened a fresh bottle. But Carrie said it smelt like brandy. As I knew it to be whisky, I said there was nothing to discuss. Carrie, evidently vexed that Lupin had not come in, did discuss it all the same, and wanted me to have a small wager with her to decide by the smell. I said I could decide it by the taste in a moment. A silly and unnecessary argument followed, 
the result of which was we suddenly saw it was a quarter past twelve, and for the first time in our married life we missed welcoming in the new year. Lupin got home at a quarter past two, having got lost in the fog. So he said. End of chapter. The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 14 Begin the year with an unexpected promotion at the office. I make two good jokes. I get an enormous rise in my salary. Lupin speculates successfully and starts a pony trap. Have to speak to Sarah. Extraordinary conduct of Gowings. January the 1st. I had intended concluding my diary last week, but a most important event has happened, so I shall continue for a little while longer on the fly-leaves attached to the end of my last year's diary. It had just struck half-past one, and I was on the point of leaving the office to have dinner, when I received a message that Mr. Perkup desired to see me at once. I must confess that my heart commenced to beat, and I had most serious misgivings. Mr. Perkup was in his room writing, and he said, "'Take a seat, Mr. Pooter, I shall not be a moment.' I replied, "'No, thank you, sir, I'll stand.' I watched the clock on the mantelpiece, and I was watching quite twenty minutes, but it seemed hours. Mr. Perkup at last got up himself. I said, I hope there is nothing wrong, sir. He replied, Oh, dear, no, quite the reverse, I hope. What a weight off my mind! My breath seemed to come back again in an instant. Mr. Perkup said, Mr. Buckling is going to retire, and there will be some slight changes in the office. You have been with us nearly twenty-one years, and, in consequence of your conduct during that period, we intend making a special promotion in your favour. We have not quite decided how you will be placed, but in any case there will be a considerable increase in your salary, which, it is quite unnecessary for me to say, you fully deserve. I have an appointment at two, but you shall hear more to-morrow. He then left the room quickly and I was not even allowed time or thought to express a single word of grateful thanks to him. I need not say how dear Carrie received the joyful news. With perfect simplicity, she said, at last we shall be able to have a chimney-glass for the back drawing-room, which we have always wanted. I added, yes, and at last you shall have that little costume which you saw at Peter Robinson's so cheap. January the 2nd. I was in a great state of suspense all day at the office. I did not like to worry Mr. Perkup, but as he did not send for me, and mentioned yesterday that he would see me again to-day, I thought it better, perhaps, to go to him. I knocked at his door, and on entering Mr. Perkup said, "'Oh, it's you, Mr. Pooter. Do you want to see me?' I said, "'No, sir, I thought you wanted to see me.' "'Oh,' he replied, "'I remember. Well, I am very busy to-day. I'll see you to-morrow.' January the 3rd still in a state of anxiety and excitement, which was not alleviated by ascertaining that Mr. Perkup sent word he should not be at the office to-day. In the evening Lupin, who was busily engaged with a paper, said suddenly to me, "'Do you know anything about chalk-pits, Gov?' I said, "'No, my boy, not that I am aware of.' Lupin said, "'Well, 
I give you the tip. Chalk pits are as safe as consoles, and pay six per cent at par. I said a rather neat thing, viz. They may be six per cent at par, but your par has no money to invest. Carrie and I both roared with laughter. Lupin did not take the slightest notice of the joke, although I purposely repeated it for him. But he continued, I give you the tip, that's all, chalk pits. I said another funny thing. Mind you don't fall into them. Lupin put on a supercilious smile and said, Bravo, Joe Miller. January the 4th. Mr. Perkup sent for me and told me that my position would be that of one of the senior clerks. I was more than overjoyed. Mr. Perkup added, he would let me know tomorrow what the salary would be. This means another day's anxiety. I don't mind, for it is anxiety of the right sort. That reminded me that I had forgotten to speak to Lupin about the letter I received from Mr. Mutlar, Sr. I broached the subject to Lupin in the evening, having first consulted Carrie. Lupin was riveted to the Financial Times, as if he had been a born capitalist, and I said, Pardon me a moment, Lupin. How is it you have not been to the Mutlers any day this week? Lupin answered, I told you I cannot stand old Mutlar. I said, Mr. Mutler writes to me to say pretty plainly that he cannot stand you. Lupin said, Well, I like his cheek in writing to you. I will find out if his father is still alive, and I will write to him a note complaining of his son, and I'll state pretty clearly that his son is a blithering idiot. I said, Lupin, please moderate your expressions in the presence of your mother. Lupin said, I'm very sorry, but there is no other expression one can apply to him. However, I'm determined not to enter his place again. I said, you know, Lupin, he has forbidden you the house. Lupin replied, well, we won't split straws, it's all the same. Daisy is a trump and will wait for me ten years if necessary. January the 5th. I can scarcely write the news. Mr. Perkup told me my salary would be raised one hundred pounds. I stood gaping for a moment, unable to realise it. I annually get ten pounds rise, and I thought it might be fifteen or even twenty. But a hundred pounds surpasses all belief. Carrie and I both rejoiced over our good fortune. Lupin came home in the evening in the utmost good spirits. I sent Sarah quietly round to the grocer's for a bottle of champagne, the same as we had before, Jackson Frere. It was opened at supper, and I said to Lupin, This is to celebrate some good news I have received to-day. Lupin replied, Hooray, Gov, and I have some good news also, a double event, eh? I said, My boy, as a result of twenty-one years' industry and strict attention to the interests of my superiors in office, I have been rewarded with promotion and a rise in salary of a hundred pounds. Lupin gave three cheers, and we rapped the table furiously, which brought in Sarah to see what the matter was. Lupin ordered us to fill up again, and, addressing us upstanding, said, having been in the firm of Job, Cleanans, Stock and Shareholders a few weeks, and not having paid particular attention to the interests of my superiors in office, my governor, as a reward to me, allotted me five pounds worth of shares in a really good thing. The result is, to-day, I have made two hundred pounds. I said, Lupin, you're joking. 
No, Gav, it's the good old truth. Job, clean hands, put me on to chlorates. January the 21st. I am very much concerned at Lupin having started a pony trap. I said, Lupin, are you justified in this outrageous extravagance? Lupin replied, Well, one must get to the city somehow. I've only hired it, and can give it up any time I like. I repeated my question. Are you justified in this extravagance? He replied, Look here, Gov, excuse me saying so, but you're a bit out of date. It does not pay nowadays fiddling about over small things. I don't mean anything personal, Governor. My boss says if I take his tip and stick to big things, I can make big money. I said I thought the very idea of speculation most horrifying. Lupin said, It is not speculation, it's a dead cert. I advised him at all events not to continue the pony and cart, but he replied, I made two hundred pounds in one day. Now suppose I only make two hundred pounds in a month, or put it out to a hundred pounds a month, which is ridiculously low, why that is one thousand two hundred and fifty pounds a year. What's a few pounds a week for a trap? I did not pursue the subject further, beyond saying that I should feel glad when the autumn came, and Lupin would be of age and responsible for his own debts. He answered, My dear Gov, I promise you faithfully that I will never speculate with what I have not got. I shall only go on job Cleanan's tips, and, as he is in the know, it is pretty safe sailing. I felt somewhat relieved. Gowing called in the evening, and, to my surprise, informed me that, as he had made ten pounds by one of Lupin's tips, he intended asking us and the Cummings round next Saturday. Carrie and I said we would be delighted. January the 22nd. I don't generally lose my temper with servants, but I had to speak to Sarah rather sharply about a careless habit she has recently contracted of shaking the tablecloth after removing the breakfast things in a manner which causes all the crumbs to fall on the carpet, eventually to be trodden in. Sarah answered very rudely, "'Oh, you are always complaining.' I replied, "'Indeed I am not. I spoke to you last week about walking all over the drawing-room carpet with a piece of yellow soap on the heel of your boot.' She said, "'And you are always grumbling about your breakfast.' I said, "'No, I am not. But I feel perfectly justified in complaining that I never can get a hard-boiled egg. The moment I crack the shell it spurts all over the place, and I have spoken to you at least fifty times about it.' She began to cry and make a scene, but fortunately my bus came by, so I had a good excuse for leaving her. Gowing left a message in the evening that we were not to forget next Saturday. Carrie amusingly said, as he has never asked any friends before, we are not likely to forget it. January the 23rd. I asked Lupin to try and change the hard brushes he had recently made me a present of for some softer ones, as my hairdresser tells me I ought not to brush my hair too much just now. January the 24th. The new chimney-glass came home for the back drawing-room. Carrie arranged some fans very prettily on the top and on each side. It is an immense improvement to the room. January the 25th. We had just finished our tea when who should come in but Cummings, who has not been here for over three weeks. I noticed he looked anything but well, so I said, Well, Cummings, how are you? You look a little blue. He replied, Yes, and I feel blue too. I said, Why, what's the matter? He said, 
Oh, nothing, except that I've been on my back for a couple of weeks, that's all. At one time my doctor nearly gave me up, yet not a soul has come near me. No one has even taken the trouble to inquire whether I was alive or dead. I said, this is the first I've heard of it. I have passed your house several nights and presumed you had company, as the rooms were so brilliantly lighted. Cummings replied, no, the only company I have had was my wife, the doctor and the landlady, the last named having turned out a perfect trump. I wonder you did not see it in the paper. I know it was mentioned in the bicycle news. I thought to cheer him up, and said, well, you're all right now. He replied, that's not the question. The question is whether an illness does not enable you to discover who are your true friends. I said such an observation was unworthy of him. To make matters worse, in came Gowing, who gave Cummings a violent slap on the back, and said, Hello! Have you seen a ghost? You look scared to death, like Irving in Macbeth. I said, Gently, Gowing, the poor fellow has been very ill. Gowing roared with laughter, and said, Yes, and you look it, too. Cummings quietly said, Yes, and I feel it, too, not that I suppose you care. An awkward silence followed. Gowing said, Never mind, Cummings, you and the missus, come round to my place to-morrow, and it will cheer you up a bit, for we'll open a bottle of wine. January the 26th. An extraordinary thing happened. Carrie and I went round to Gowing's, as arranged, at half-past seven. We knocked and rang several times without getting an answer. At last the latch was drawn, and the door opened a little way, the chain still being up. A man in shirt-sleeves put his head through and said, "'Who is it? What do you want?' I said, "'Mr. Gowing, he's expecting us.' The man said, as well as I could hear, owing to the yapping of a little dog, "'I don't think he is. Mr. Gowing is not at home.' I said, "'He will be in directly.' With that observation he slammed the door, leaving Carrie and me standing on the steps, with a cutting wind blowing round the corner. Carrie advised me to knock again. I did so and then discovered for the first time that the knocker had been newly painted, and the paint had come off on my gloves, which were, in consequence, completely spoiled. I knocked at the door with my stick two or three times. The man opened the door, taking the chain off this time, and began abusing me. He said, "'What do you mean by scratching the paint with your stick like that, spoiling the varnish? You ought to be ashamed of yourself.' I said, "'Pardon me,' Mr. Gowing invited—he interrupted, and said, I don't care for Mr. Gowing or any of his friends. This is my door, not Mr. Gowing's. There are people here besides Mr. Gowing. The impertinence of this man was nothing. I scarcely noticed it. It was so trivial in comparison with the scandalous conduct of Gowing. At this moment Cummings and his wife arrived. Cummings was very lame and leaning on a stick, but got up the steps and asked what the matter was. The man said, Mr. Gowing said nothing about expecting anyone. All he said was that he had just received an invitation to Croydon, and he should not be back till Monday evening. He took his bag with him. With that he slammed the door again. I was too indignant with Gowing's conduct to say anything. Cummings looked white with rage, and as he descended the steps, struck his stick violently on the ground, and said, Scoundrel! End of chapter The Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Grossmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 15 
Gowing explains his conduct. Lupin takes us for a drive, which we don't enjoy. Lupin introduces us to Mr. Murray Posh. February the 8th. It does seem hard that I cannot get good sausages for breakfast. They're either full of bread or spice or as red as beef. Still anxious about the twenty pound I invested last week by Lupin's advice. However, Cummings has done the same. February the ninth. Exactly a fortnight has passed, and I have neither seen nor heard from Gowing respecting his extraordinary conduct in asking us round to his house and then being out. In the evening, Carrie was engaged marking a half dozen new collars I had purchased. I'll back Carrie's marking against anybody's. While I was drying them at the fire and Carrie was rebuking me for scorching them, Cummings came in. He seemed quite well again and chaffed us about marking the collars. I asked him if he had heard from Gowing, and he replied that he had not. I said I should not have believed that Gowing could have acted in such an ungentlemanly manner. Cummings said, You are mild in your description of him. I think he acted like a cad. The words were scarcely out of his mouth when the door opened, and Gowing, putting in his head, said, May I come in? I said, Certainly. Carrie said, very pointedly, Well, you are a stranger. Gowing said, Yes, I've been on and off to Croydon during the last fortnight. I could see Cummings was boiling over, and eventually he tackled Gowing very strongly respecting his conduct last Saturday week. Gowing appeared surprised and said, Why, I posted a letter to you in the morning announcing that the party was off, very much off. I said, I never got it. Gowing, turning to Carrie, said, I suppose letters sometimes miscarry, don't they? Mrs. Carey. Cummings sharply said, This is not a time for joking. I had no notice of the party being put off. I told Pooter in my note to tell you, as I was in a hurry. However, I'll inquire at the post office, and we must meet again at my place. I added that I hoped he would be present at the next meeting. Carey roared at this, and even Cummings could not help laughing. February the 10th, Sunday. Contrary to my wishes, Carrie allowed Lupin to persuade her to take her for a drive in the afternoon in his trap. I quite disapprove of driving on a Sunday, but I did not like to trust Carrie alone with Lupin, so I offered to go too. Lupin said, Now, that is nice of you, Gov, but you won't mind sitting on the back seat of the cart. Lupin proceeded to put on a bright blue coat that seemed miles too large for him. Carrie said it wanted taking in considerably at the back. Lupin said, Haven't you seen a box coat before? You can't drive in anything else. He may wear what he likes in the future, for I shall never drive with him again. His conduct was shocking. When we passed Highgate Archway, he tried to pass everything and everybody. He shouted to respectable people who were walking quietly in the road to get out of the way. He flicked the horse of an old man who was riding, causing it to rear. And as I had to ride backwards, I was compelled to face a gang of roughs in a donkey-cart, whom Lupin had chaffed, and who turned and followed us for nearly a mile, bellowing, indulging in coarse jokes and laughter, to say nothing of occasionally pelting us with orange-peel. 
Lupin's excuse, that the Prince of Wales would have to put up with the same sort of thing if he drove to the Derby, was of little consolation to either Carrie or myself. Frank Mutler called in the evening, and Lupin went out with him. February the 11th. Feeling a little concerned about Lupin, I mustered up courage to speak to Mr. Perkup about him. Mr. Perkup has always been most kind to me, so I told him everything, including yesterday's adventure. Mr. Perkup kindly replied, There is no necessity for you to be anxious, Mr. Pooter. It would be impossible for a son of such good parents to turn out erroneously. Remember, he is young and will soon get older. I wish we could find room for him in this firm. The advice of this good man takes loads off my mind. In the evening, Lupin came in. After our little supper, he said, My dear parents, I have some news which I fear will affect you considerably. I felt a qualm come over me and said nothing. Lupin then said, It may distress you, in fact, I'm sure it will, but this afternoon I have given up my pony and trap for ever. It may seem absurd, but I was so pleased I immediately opened a bottle of port. Gowing dropped in just in time, bringing with him a large sheet with a print of a tailless donkey which he fastened against the wall. He then produced several separate tails, and we spent the remainder of the evening trying blindfolded to pin a tail on in the proper place. My sides positively ached with laughter when I went to bed. February the 12th. In the evening I spoke to Lupin about his engagement with Daisy Mutlar. I asked if he had heard from her. He replied, no, she promised that old windbag of a father of hers that she would not communicate with me. I see Frank Mutlar, of course. In fact, he said he might call again this evening. Frank called, but he said he could not stop, as he had a friend waiting outside for him named Murray Posh adding he was quite a swell. Carrie asked Frank to bring him in. He was brought in, going entering at the same time. Mr. Murray Posh was a tall, fat young man, and was evidently of a very nervous disposition. As he subsequently confessed, he would never go in a handsome cab, nor would he enter a four-wheeler until the driver had first got on the box with the reins in his hands. On being introduced, Gowing, with his usual want of tact, said, "'Any relation to Posh's three-shilling hats?' Mr. Posh replied, "'Yes, but please understand I don't try on hats myself. I take no active part in the business.' I replied, "'I wish I had a business like it.' Mr. Posh seemed pleased, and gave a long but most interesting history of the extraordinary difficulties in the manufacture of cheap hats." Murray Posh evidently knew Daisy Mutlar very intimately from the way he was talking of her, and Frank said to Lupin once, laughingly, If you don't look out, Posh will cut you out. When they had all gone, I referred to this flippant conversation, and Lupin said, sarcastically, A man who is jealous has no respect for himself. A man who would be jealous of an elephant like Murray Posh could only have contempt for himself. I know, Daisy, she would wait ten years for me, as I said before. In fact, if necessary, she would wait twenty years for me. End of chapter. The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith 
Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 16 We lose money over Lupin's advice as to investment, so does Cummings. Murray Posh engaged to Daisy Mutlar. February the 18th. Carrie has several times recently called attention to the thinness of my hair at the top of my head, and recommended me to get it seen to. I was this morning trying to look at it by the aid of a small hand-glass, when somehow my elbow caught against the edge of the chest of drawers, and knocked the glass out of my hand and smashed it. Carrie was in an awful way about it, as she is rather absurdly superstitious. To make matters worse, my large photograph in the drawing-room fell during the night, and the glass cracked. Carrie said, Mark my words, Charles, some misfortune is about to happen. I said, Nonsense, dear. In the evening Lupin arrived home early, and seemed a little agitated. I said, What's up, my boy? He hesitated a good deal, and then said, You know those parachica chlorates I advise you to invest twenty pounds in? I replied, Yes, they are all right, I trust. He replied, Well, no, to the surprise of everybody, they have utterly collapsed. My breath was so completely taken away I could say nothing. Carrie looked at me and said, What did I tell you? Lupin, after a while, said, However, you are specially fortunate. I received an early tip and sold out yours immediately, and was fortunate to get two pounds for them. So you get something after all. I gave a sigh of relief. I said, I was not so sanguine as to suppose, as you predicted, that I should get six or eight times the amount of my investment. Still, a profit of two pounds is a good percentage for such a short time. Lupin said quite irritably, You don't understand. I sold your twenty pounds shares for two pounds. You therefore lose eighteen pounds on the transaction, whereby Cummins and Gowing will lose the whole of theirs. February the 19th. Lupin, before going to town, said, I'm very sorry about those parachica chlorates. It would not have happened if the boss job cleanans had been in town. Between ourselves, you must not be surprised if something goes wrong at our office. Job cleanans has not been seen in the last few days, and it strikes me several people do want to see him very particularly. In the evening, Lupin was just on the point of going out to avoid a collision with Gowing and Cummings, when the former entered the room without knocking, but with his usual trick of saying, May I come in? He entered, and, to the surprise of Lupin and myself, seemed to be in the very best of spirits. Neither Lupin nor I broached the subject to him, but he did so of his own accord. He said, I say those parachica chlorates have gone an awful smash. You're a nice one, Master Lupin. How much do you lose? Lupin, to my utter astonishment, said, Oh, I had nothing in them. There was some informality in my application. I forgot to enclose the cheque or something, and I didn't get any. The gov loses eighteen pounds. I said I quite understood you were in it, or nothing would have induced me to speculate. Lupin replied, Well, it can't be helped. You must go double on the next tip. Before I could reply, Gowing said, Well, I lose nothing, fortunately. From what I heard, I did not quite believe in them, so I persuaded Cummings to take my fifteen pounds worth, as he had more faith in them than I had. Lupin burst out laughing. 
and in the most unseemly manner said, "'Alas, poor Cummings, he'll lose thirty-five pounds.' At that moment there was a ring at the bell. Lupin said, "'I don't want to meet Cummings.' If he had gone out of the door, he would have met him in the passage, so as quickly as possible Lupin opened the parlour window and got out. Gowing jumped up suddenly, exclaiming, "'I don't want to see him either,' and before I could say a word he followed Lupin out of the window." For my own part, I was horrified to think that my own son and one of my most intimate friends should depart from the house like a couple of interrupted burglars. Poor Cummings was very upset, and naturally was very angry both with Lupin and Gowing. I pressed him to have a little whisky, and he replied he had given up whisky, but would like a little unsweetened, as he was advised it was the most healthy spirit. I had none in the house, but sent Sarah round to Lockwood's for some. February the 20th The first thing that caught my eye on opening the standard was Great failure of stock and share dealers. Mr. Job Cleanands absconded. I handed it to Carrie, and she replied, Oh, perhaps it's for Lupin's good. I never did think it a suitable situation for him. I thought the whole affair very shocking. Lupin came down to breakfast, and, seeing he looked painfully distressed, I said, "'We know the news, my dear boy, and feel very sorry for you.' Lupin said, "'How did you know? Who told you?' I handed him the standard. He threw the paper down and said, "'Oh, I don't care a button for that. I expected that, but I did not expect this.' He then read a letter from Frank Mutlar, announcing in a cool manner that Daisy Mutlar is to be married next month to Murray Posh. I exclaimed, Murray Posh, is not that the very man Frank had the impudence to bring here last Tuesday week? Lupin said, yes, the Posh's three-shilling hats chap. We all then ate our breakfast in dead silence. In fact, I could eat nothing. I was not only too worried, but I cannot and will not eat cushion of bacon. If I cannot get streaky bacon, I will do without anything. When Lupin rose to go, I noticed a malicious smile creep over his face. I asked him what it meant. He replied, Oh, only a little consolation. Still, it is a consolation. I have just remembered that, by my advice, Mr. Murray Posh has invested six hundred pounds in parachica chlorates. End of chapter. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.